Hello, how are you doing? I'm Craig Parkinson. You are listening to the Two Shot Podcast. Sit yourself down, pop the kettle on. We're going to have a nice old chat. Who's it with this week? I'm going to tell you right now. It's Thursday, so that can only mean one thing. Well, actually, it means means loads of things, really, doesn't it, Thursday? But right now, it means one thing. It's episode 45 of the Two Shot Podcast with Mr. Dave Haslam. More of that in a sec. You're here. Fantastic. How are you? Everything good? Thanks so much for all your messages, by the way, and, and your emails about the awards. I'm sorry we haven't had time to get back to everybody yet, but we will. I promise. So what are you up to? Uh, you're getting back to work after the bank holiday. Yeah, short week. That's good. Is it half term? Maybe you're wrangling children. You don't know what to do with them. Or maybe this is your time now to put the kettle on, put your feet up and listen to the episode. Maybe. Maybe it isn't. Who knows? Look, huge thanks to everybody who... Oh, we were in Bath last week for Bath Festivals. Um, who kindly invited the Two Shot Podcast to record a live episode there. And as the weather has been very unpredictable of late, um, yeah, it absolutely chucked it down. Excuse me. But it doesn't matter because, I don't know who... We sold out anyway. It was a fantastic night. And it was with Charlie Cooper from this country. It was going to be with Daisy and Charlie, but Daisy was stuck in London. She couldn't make it, but that didn't matter because we spent more time with Charlie and we're going to do another episode with Daisy. So we're not going to miss out. But if you were there, you will know what an absolutely brilliant night it was. And uh, we are going to put that as an episode soon-ish, I think. Uh, Anyway, it's coming soon and it's an absolute belter. Um, what else? Uh, yeah, well, we might as well get down to it. So, a few months ago, uh, the Charlatans uh, were doing a takeover of Northwich, which is in Cheshire. And they called it North by Northwich. There were lots of bands there. Uh, The Charlatans were doing, I think, four consecutive nights of gigs. And then they were streaming it live all around the world. Uh, And it was a really big thing. And they asked us to do two live episodes and we're very lucky to get Mr Dave Haslam and the mighty Mr Paddy Considine and this is episode 45 get your glow sticks ready it's Mr Dave Haslam It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. How the devil are you all? This is the Two Shot Podcast, and you join us here on a very special day. You know the day. It's where two people come together, and we appreciate them. That's right, it's the Two Shot Podcast with Mr. Dave Haslam! (laughs) 
you, you got that I was thinking about the royal wedding. Yeah, you, you got. Yeah, okay, well, that's fine. You know, we work these things out. We are here at, live at North by Northwich on this beautiful sunny day. Dave, how are you? I'm very nervous. Why? Uh, because the book tour officially starts on Tuesday. So this is like the first one that I've done. Well, what I want to do is warm you up for them. And so also, you have a beautiful voice, Craig. And I, I feel a bit uncomfortable in, in the presence of your beautiful voice. Dave, so. please. <laughs> Look, Dave, it's fine. We're just t- chatting as friends. And what I was thinking was because... Um, does anybody listen to the podcast here? Oh, you do? Fantastic. So we've recorded about 50. And what keeps cropping up all the time, whether it's actors, writers, poets, whatever sort of creative work they do, music always comes into it. And it was quite funny because some people always say, oh, my mum and dad, were, they, they influenced me so much because they, they, they put the Johnny Mitchell and Jimi Hendrix. And then some people go, well, yeah, we had... Um, an M People CD and Clanad. That's all we had. So I, I didn't know where I got my musical taste from. So I suppose some people like Clanad. I don't know who they're not here. It was great. So I suppose what I wanted to start by talking to you about was your you growing up and if your parents inspired or gave you anything musically. Now you see, I thought we were starting with me reading. Oh, did you? But as it happens, the thing I was going to read is exactly on... Not exactly on that subject, but it would answer that question. But I would love to answer that question. Okay. Uh, I grew up in Birmingham. I came to Manchester in 1980 to be, become a student. And that, that choice was based purely on music. Um, I, I was, by that time, a big fan of Factory Records. And I'd become obsessed, particularly with Joy Division... Um, and as a sixth former, Joy Division kind of, at that age, 17, 18, Joy Division really hit me. You know, they really oh, made an impact. Yeah, me too. And uh, Ian Curtis actually killed himself in the run-up to my A-levels. And this is how, I think, weirdly, this is how everybody thinks of their life. You think of that, <laughs> your life, you've got your life, and then you've got the life of the culture that you're interested in. Yeah. And... I don't remember the royal weddings, but I remember the amazing moments in culture, you know, seeing David Bowie performing Starman on the TV, um, hearing John Peel announce the death of Ian Curtis. Those things, I can tell you where I was and what I was doing, and I was studying... Can I ask you where you were when you heard of Ian Curtis's death? Yeah, I was listening to the John Peel radio show, and he, he announced it on the Monday after, and I was in my bedroom at home, and he in Moseley. Stu- in Moseley, in Birmingham. And he began the show by saying that he'd heard the news that Ian had died. And in answer to your question, that news meant nothing to my parents. Um, and, but that would have been the same, I think, for people when they heard that Kurt Cobain had died. That, my, my, you know, that name wasn't known to, um, you know, to, to, to the previous generation. Uh, my parents were into music, but the interesting thing about them from that point of view was in 1963, they had three children under the age of four. Wow. So first off, hats off to my mother <laughs> for 
Popping uh, those out. So popping those out. So to speak. It's not a medical term, but you get my gesture. And um, so at the moment when the Beatles and the Rolling Stones emerged and that whole kind of, you know, the birth of the teenager and the birth of the 60s and, rock and the rock and roll generation and all that, they had stuff to do. They had to look after the kids. <laughs> yeah. So actually rock and roll and all that, they were probably just five years too early, you know, uh, or five years too late, whatever. But so they didn't understand what I was into. My sister was, my elder sister was quite influential in my life musically. Her crew were into Neil Young and Rod Stewart. And what, the what's the age difference between you and your sister? Uh, three years. Right. And then my younger uh, brother is now into Neil Young. So they were kind of folky. And um, so I, I, but I was the curious teenager who was into and and intrigued by the sense of what was an alternative, um, not just musically but culturally, politically, in every way. Right. There was something in my mindset from an early age where I, I felt bewildered slash alienated by the mainstream culture. I would watch Saturday night TV and I just wouldn't get, you know, it ain't half hot mum. You know, TV shows like that, I would... They it, bewildered it, it's me. It's not speaking to me. No, it's not speaking yeah. to me. And, and, and the kind of mainstream, a lot of the mainstream stuff didn't. And so I just adventured in... And, and tried to find other things, which is why John, listen, I was listening to John Peel, because John Peel was key to that. Um, and in, that, in the late 70s, you just have to follow whatever tra- trail you could. You couldn't kind of go on the internet looking up alternative culture. You kind of... It, you had to go out, find the alternative bookshop, the art house cinema, the little venue up the road with the weird new bands playing. And I was that person and I did that little circuit and that's how I became uh, it, 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 yeah, intrigued and obsessed by that world. And do you find your people through that? The people who you connected with who like that type of yeah, thing? Yeah, I think that's how I think one of the great things about growing up in any city is that finding your tribe Which, I mean, Sorry to interrupt but it comes up again and again on the podcast throughout everybody, actors, writers, everybody, they all talk about finding their tribe, finding their people, and then they start to grow. It's so important. And that's why venue, the venues were important, you know. And the, and the thing was that when I, uh, when I arrived in Manchester and when I went over to Liverpool, uh, which I, I also did, I kind of realised I was replicating my mindset from Birmingham. So I remember I met my friend Pete Wiley, who was in a band called Wah Heat at that time, in 1980. And he met me off the train at Lime Street Station in Liverpool, and he took me to the alternative bookshop, the art house cinema, the photography gallery, Armadillo Tea Rooms. He showed me where Eric's Club was. And I realised that my, the way I'd created my own little world in Birmingham, he'd created his little world in Liverpool, and... In Manchester, I was soon at Grassroots Bookshop and the Arban Cinema and, you know, going to the Cypress Tavern and, and all kinds of venues to see smaller bands. And I realised that my, my connection, my roots and my community were not only the people who lived in my immediate surroundings, who I shared a postcode with, 
but also those people in those other cities who were, like me, looking for adventure and yeah. alternative ideas and culture, whether it be Liverpool, Manchester, Birmingham, Leeds, Newcastle, whatever. Or indeed, even as I later on in my life realised around the world there are people like that. You know, but obviously when I was 18, I didn't know much about anything no, that course. was going on out there. But isn't it funny? I remember when I first went to Manchester, you know, and I wanted to go to Affex Palace because I was so influenced, and that's the place where you have to go, and I needed my pair of kickers. And it, you may know kickers, you may not. Just Google it. They were great shoes. They are great shoes. And I didn't have enough money for the, the kickers that I sort of required for my uniform and there was a pair in the sale and they were about 29 pound which was kind of all I had about 30 quid and they were a salmon pink color they were quite a bold shoe for a for a young sort of 17 year old were they actually a girl's shoe they might have been girl's shoes Dave um I had 30 pound I couldn't go back to Blackpool without a pair of kickers I I bought them and they stayed in the box. I never had the balls to wear them out in Blackpool with my Joe Blogs. I would have just looked like a complete nana. Um, but, you know, there's a uniform, isn't there? Mm. You know, I remember when I went to Manchester for the first time, and I would walk past somebody who I thought shared my sensibilities, yeah. and we just caught eye, and there was a little nod, mm. and you feel, oh, right, well, that's my tribe, that's my people. So you may think that my first question was an accident. It wasn't. Dave is now going to read exclusively for you an extract from his memoir, which is... When, when is it available, Dave? Uh, it's out on Thursday. It's out on Thursday. And which, you if you're listening to the podcast, uh, that's Thursday, May the 24th, 2018. So, he, he's not nervous at all. He's got this down pat. <laughs> um, I'll hand this over to Dave. Thank you. Uh, what I'm kind of thinking is that if this... Uh, reading is too long, then I, obviously I won't read it again anywhere because I'll, I'll learn from my experience, which is one of the things the book is about, learning from experience. But the other thing is you can edit it all out of the podcast and we'll just we'll we go just, straight we, from the salmon shoes into <laughs> Joy Division. I think if anything's getting edited out, Dave, it might be the salmon shoe story. <laughs> I know you liked it, but you know, it might have to go. <laughs> Okay, so, um, yeah, so this is about being in Moseley and discovering alternative music, really through John Peel. And it's about a band in Moseley called the Au Pairs. There were a couple of bands locally that I got into. One was called the Prefects, and I went to see them play, and I thought they were amazing. And three weeks later, they split up. So I'm like, okay, I need another favourite ever band. And, and the Au Pairs became my next favourite ever band and I love the fact that they were they were from where I was you know they shared my street I mean I loved Iggy Pop and Debbie Harry and those people but they were untouchable it was like culture from a different place which it was and I, I, I knew I had a connection but I didn't have as deep a connection as I did you know with the au pairs and that was what I mean about my mindset so when I did arrive in in Manchester I was I, I was yeah hoping to connect with local bands, just as I had in Birmingham. This is the book, page 33, and a third. Um, 
In the post-punk period, the small independent label and DIY path to recording and releasing was well-trodden. In September 1979, the au pairs glued together the sleeve of their first record themselves and sold copies locally, including at the alternative bookshop, Prometheus. Their manager, Martin Culverwell, ran their record label, which was called 021, the area code for Birmingham. I buttonholed Martin at one of their Birmingham gigs and asked if I could see the au pairs soundcheck at an upcoming London show. I'm not sure I even knew what a soundcheck was. I came to realise later that they could be incredibly boring. 15 minutes of the drummer going thump, thump, and 10 minutes of the road crew making noises into microphones. But this was all part of my eagerness to see more, to understand more. Martin said, of course, and I walked home happy I was going to get behind the scenes. One day in July 1980, having travelled down to London on a National Express coach, I turned up at the YMCA on Tottenham Court Road on the afternoon of an au pairs gig with the Passions and banged on the door. Eventually, someone let me in, and I went into the auditorium where Martin was standing. He didn't recognise me, let alone recall, recall our encounter or my request. Over the sound of drummer Pete Hammond, thump thump thumping I attempted to tell the whole story. His promise, my journey... There was a pause. Martin looked at me. Something looming now, he shouted. What? He raised his voice again. You're here now, you're here now. Yes, I'm here now, I yelled at him. Good, he said, and quite rightly, walked away to do something more important than having a deafening conversation with an anxious young man who'd somehow decided that attending an au pair's soundcheck would be a dream come true. Three months later, I went to buy the NME, and Leslie from the Au Pairs was featured on the front cover. This accolade didn't mean the band was selling lots of records or that they were set for megastardom, but it struck me as a sign that something small, local, with undeniably prosaic roots could gain cultural significance. Being on the front of the NME was the mark of achievement in my eyes. When I interviewed Leslie, nearly 30 years later, she was living in East London. For some reason, it hadn't clicked that Leslie and guitarist Paul Fode were dating when the band began. The spikiness of their relationship was played out on stage and in the songs they co-wrote. In May 1983, the au pairs split up, and Leslie told me they'd never spoken to each other again. I quoted Walter Pater to her. To burn always with this hard, gem-like flame, to maintain this ecstasy is success in life, Leslie. She laughed, clearly unconvinced. 90% of what we talked about that evening was unprintable. Who slept with whom? Who took what drugs? In the other 10%, there was a story she told me about an encounter with Dex's Midnight Runners, specifically the band singer Kevin Rowland. She recalled how antagonistic Dex's could be. They used to go round in a gang, those boys. I think they liked intimidating people who they didn't like the look of. They were like real blokes, real lads. One evening, Dex's gate crashed a party at Leslie's flat, which she shared with another woman. Some jewellery went missing, a diamond ring, and Leslie asked them to leave. When they wouldn't leave, she tried to knock Kevin Rowland off a chair. The next day, she tracked down Kevin's number and phoned him. I remember saying that there was a ring gone missing, and it's very valuable, that one of his guys had taken it, and if they didn't give it me back, they'd have the police and Interpol on their back. Interpol? Oh, yeah, okay. I didn't know where all this bullshit was coming from. Anyway, he called me back. He sat in the room with me for about three hours talking about violence. I got the ring back. Amazing. When I interviewed Kevin at the green room in Manchester, I took the opportunity to ask him about this incident and told him about Leslie's memory of the event. It's something like that, he said. 
She came round to mine. I was shocked. We didn't know these people. They were from the other side of town. Mosley, middle-classy, studenty, CND, different kind of thing to us completely. I was quite surprised she came around unannounced with some guy. What did she say? Kevin adopted a middle-classy student CND voice. What is this Dexies against the world thing, Kevin? What is it? What did you reply? I said, I don't know. I told Kevin that Leslie found it intriguing that he'd metamorphosed from someone that she thought was quite intimidating to someone who would sit down and talk about stuff. I don't think I had a lot of choice with her, he said. That green room interview was one of the three I did with Kevin in the three decades after I first saw Dexie's play in 1979. Back then I'd I'd begun adventuring in the world of new bands, but I knew almost nothing about them. Someone said that a lad from school was in them, or was going to be in them, playing keyboards. I saw an A4 poster advertising a Dexys gig at a venue called Romulus along Hagley Road. I'd never been there, but it seemed too good to miss. Plus, the support band were Joy Division. I'd been hoping for a chance to see Joy Division, and here they were, playing not far from the number one bus route which went past the end of our road. The Joy Division debut album, Unknown Pleasures, had just been released six or seven weeks earlier. I'd heard tracks on John Peel. I'd bought it. Joy Division rejected punk formulas but drew on punk energy, reservoirs of personal anguish and relentless intellectual adventure. They questioned themselves with more ferocity than punk had questioned society. This is how Tony Wilson explained the shift. Punk enabled you to say, fuck you, but somehow it couldn't go any further. Sooner or later, someone was going to say, I'm fucked, and that was Joy Division. Joy Division hadn't exploded into the big time. The band were playing many unheralded venues. They were still some way short of selling the first 10,000 copies of Unknown Pleasures. I was confused more than anything by my first Joy Division concert. Despite the album reviews and the John Peel coverage, there were only 80 people there when Joy Division came on stage at Romulus. The sound system wasn't great, or something else had hampered the sound. I wasn't quite sure. I was expecting the very crisp sound on the album and to be pulled into the echoey spaces, but the band were a slightly chaotic, blurred noise, and the sound was a bit rushed. The most powerful part of the performance was how they looked on stage. They had intensity, all four individuals self-contained in a zone of their own. Drummer Stephen Morris, a little sideways on, not catching anyone's eye, appeared to be focused on some point in the middle distance. Hooky was fronting the audience, his bass low-hanging. Bernard was facing Ian, but not watching him, and Ian inhabited a force field, concentrated, electric. The most unexpected thing about the whole event was it appeared to be a mod night of some sort, Romulus was a haunt of the new generation of mods, and early Dexies appealed to that audience. I saw Joy Division three times. All the gigs were to some extent or other ramshackle, or disconcerting, or both. But ever since that Romulus gig, I've never been hung up on judging a live performance by how close it is to the sound of a record. If you want to hear the band just like on a record, you're best off staying in, listening at home. During a live show, I want the band to reveal something, something else, including their imperfections as musicians and or people. This especially seemed true of Joy Division, a group whose motivation and appeal seemed to be bound up with a struggle towards articulacy. Thank you. (laughs) 
Thanks, Dave. That was a really brilliant piece. And that, that, obviously that means a lot to me because I have a nice connection with Joy Division and I'm sure all our listeners do. But what I want to do is I want to go back to school with you. And were you academic at school? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You were. Can you not tell from that amazing little bit of extra well, of writing? Wrote, yeah, well, yeah. you've wrote enough bloody books. I, I, I read, thought you'd read, be half decent, books. yeah. No, to be honest, I, I was... Uh, when I say I was curious... Like, earlier I said how curious I was about discovering alternative culture. I, w- I was just generally a curious young man, and, and I, I read all the time. And back then I, I used to read... Uh, there was a whole load of books called Penguin Modern Classics, uh, which was a series of books, and... Um, and I found a lot of them incomprehensible, but a lot of them very ended up being very influential. And I loved them, you know, so it was like Franz Kafka and Albert Camus. And that was kind of part of the alternative, that people at that point in the late 70s looking for ideas. You know, and, and Marquis e. Smith called The Fall after an Albert Camus novel, you know, and uh, Howard DeVoto would reference Dostoevsky. So there was, a, there was a sense that the music and the books all belonged in, in a world of ideas, and that, that world was something that we could find, find our own space in and even maybe change. So I did. And you made a connection. I made a connection, and I found a space, and that idea of making a change was also part of the whole post-punk thing that I mentioned at the beginning of that extract. That idea in the late 70s that the Sex Pistols had somehow... They'd they'd kind of thrown everything up in the air. And the idea, really, that I got from them um, was you can make your own culture. That you... Everything from a fanzine to gluing the sleeve of your record together... uh, being on an independent label, putting on bands. That sense of uh, participation was really important. So all that kind of ended up coming together, I think, in my mind, the sense of an alternative, the sense that you could change culture, and the sense that, that you could change culture on a local level and it could have significance somehow to other people. And did you feel that music and literature were going hand in hand for you at school... And you were given the freedom and influence. Yeah, it's to, kind to... of. I mean, um, only that I was just. Inter- I wasn't kind of analysing it. I just thought that I was interested in books. I was interested in. And it seemed music. a very natural thing for you to. Yeah, but the weird thing was that I'm. I'm. I'm not really. And, and I still. Those are still my two passions. But uh, I was never that interested in. Uh, say very. Uh, supposedly literate songwriters. Right. So you'd kind of think somebody who was into books and into music would kind of be into kind of Dylan, for example. Um, and, uh, but I wasn't. What I liked about music was that it had a kind of visceral appeal, that it actually went... It bypassed your brain and went straight into your soul, uh, whereas that's not what books did. But my brain needed feeding as well. So the, the things all worked for me, combined, I think. And um, so that's why I used to like seeing live bands, because I just loved being in a small room and just being you know, completely blasted by this, this power 
and the, coming and the from energy. the stage and the energy. Yeah. So when you left school and did your parents say, so Dave, what, what's the next step? What's the plan? What do you uh, want what are you to gonna do? do? What you are you going to do? That, that question. Well, one, one of the... Th- uh, in the, the last chapter of... The, sorry, the first chapter of the book, um, I talk about my mother dying because what happened, I, I left uh, Birmingham, moved to Manchester, and I never went back. I mean, partly because Manchester, for me, held so many attractions and I felt very embedded, very welcome, very rooted there. I loved the music scene. It was everything that in my head I'd hoped it would be and I would see Marky Smith in the pub and I would see Pete Shelley in the alternative bookshop and it was a very small world, that that Manchester scene, very small and actually not particularly celebrated at the time. But So it was easy to access and really wonderful. Um, and But also, uh, as I talk about in my book, my mother died and the family kind of broke up, really, and all went and ended up living in different parts of the country. Um, yeah, so... Uh, my, so my mother isn't alive to read my life story, um, my, but my father is, bless him. And he, he kept asking me what I was going to do, really up until about four years ago. <laughs> <laughs> because, me as too. I say, he's not part of the rock and roll generation. He, 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 he I t- uh, actually, I mean, obviously he's getting on now. Uh, I took him a copy of the book, hand-delivered it to him, where he, he lives in Ludlow. He's retired, obviously, and he's like in his mid-80s. And um, he said, he kind of started leafing through the book, and I could tell, it, it, I knew it was going to be all new to him. I mean, there's a chapter about growing up, and he'll like that, you know, but... And he started reading, reading the back, um, or, or no, one of the flaps, and it says, he's kind of, he started reading it to me, and he said, uh, from having Morrissey to tea, Morrissey, yeah, Morrissey, I remember that, a friend of yours, isn't he, friend of yours, I'm like, yeah. to meeting writers such as Raymond Carver and Jonathan Franzen, to discussing masturbation, with Viv Albertine, and I had that moment, even though I'm 56, where I didn't want my father to say the word masturbation. Uh, and ecstasy with Rasheen Murphy. He looked at me and I thought, he's going to ask me about masturbation or ecstasy, which are obviously two of my favourite topics, <laughs> as, it, as it turns out. But obviously both quite awkward when discussing yeah. with your dad. And he actually said... Rasheen, is that how you say her name? <laughs> Which well got me off the hook. Yeah, so he basically has no idea what I do. He's never heard me DJ. Um, but, you know, bless them, they were both very much of, of the mindset. If you're happy, that's all that matters. Yeah. So, you know, they didn't. And, and he kind of he, he calmed down about what you're going to do, you know, when, once... Um, yeah, once he realised that there wasn't really an answer, really. I mean, we've touched on musical influences like Joy Division and The Fall, but when did dance music enter and come in for you? When did that come in? Because Craig's read the book. He knows, he knows I, had, I had a moment. They haven't read it, right, Dave. Okay. It's very they haven't read it. So I had a moment. So... 
I used to go to a club called Barbarella's in Birmingham. I was about seven. We haven't even got to Manchester yet, and we've been talking very interestingly for so long, Craig, but I'm really this pleased about this four-hour podcast. Hour podcast. So um, I went to see, I went to Barbarella's and I saw Iggy Pop and Blondie and lots of great things in this little club in Birmingham. And this band called Generation X were, um, were playing. And, you know, my, my friends were like, let's go to see Generation X with, obviously, Billy Idol was the front man. And, um, and we went and I just, it just didn't connect. You know, and that's the weird thing about that tribe or wearing a uniform. I've actually never really bought into everything that you need to to be in a tribe. You know, I've often not worn the uniform, to be honest, and I've often, often not gone with the whole thing. I've not, like, if I'm into a band and they put out a bad record, I'm, I don't play it, I don't buy it, just, you know, anyway. Yeah. So I, I was like, I don't actually, I, I've said to my friend, I don't really get this Generation X. I'm going to wander down the corridor where I knew there was a disco room and uh, we never went in the disco room so I walked down the corridor into the disco room and it was empty because nobody ever walked down into the disco room especially when Generation X were playing and I walked in and the DJ uh, must you know obviously excited he had a had a customer (laughs) and he, he threw down uh, can you feel the force by the real thing? Ooh, ooh, ooh. Can you feel, can the, you force? feel the force? Yep. Yeah. No, okay. I thought everybody was going to join in then for a second, Dave. No. And obviously, the 700 people who are here will know that song. And um, and at that moment, I just thought I, I, I absolutely loved it. I mean, obviously, it's not the trendiest disco record ever, but um, I, I'm just like, okay. Wherever I am, whatever I do, I'm always going to walk down that corridor to the disco room. I'm always now, from this moment, I'm going to have one foot in the live room and one foot in the disco. And, and that was 1979. And so that's it. That's how I've always been since that moment. So the lesson there is walk into your disco room wherever your disco room may be. Well, walk, walk through the doors is always an important thing. I think that is one of the, one of the things that I realised when I, when I was writing the book. Obviously, when you write a book, you have all the little details, but then you, you end up thinking, well, what's, what's the architecture of the book? Where, how does it all hang together? It's not necessarily a theme, but it's just something that you realise is, is emerging or, and is there and is a connection maybe between, you know, me now and me age 33 or 23 or 17. And that architecture is, it becomes important because it's the, a way of shaping all those little details. Um, and I realised that one of the themes of the book, and hence my life, I guess, is that I have always knocked on doors, you know, literally and metaphorically, that... Where, where does that come from? And I don't know really where that comes from. I think it comes from that extreme curiosity thing. And also that... This, this is how I actually feel that some, somehow it's... Maybe you're a bit... Un, maybe people can be unsettled at, point, at points in their lives or just generally unsettled with who they are, where they are, who they're with. 
And there's that sense. It's like um, knocking on a door and going through into a different world. Um, and I think that, you know, it's like the, the Midnight Garden or whatever that b- book's called, you know, where, where you go through a door and it's like a dream world. But actually sometimes you go through that door and it's not the dream world, it's the real world. And you've, you've entered it somehow. Yeah. And you've entered it just because either someone's given you the key or you've just thought, I'm going to go through it. And metaphorically and literally, I just feel like I'm either through being unsettled or curious or confident or whatever. Brave. I'm brave. You know, so literally, 1983, I'm doing a little fanzine in Manchester. I knock on the door of the manager of the Smiths and say, can I interview Morrissey? You know, and that kind of, that's kind of how I've, I've operated, really. But that's great self-belief, uh, without arrogance. You know, it's, that's a brave and great self-belief. So does that, do you think that comes from your father or your I, mother? Or? I, don't, I don't, honestly, I don't know where that self-belief comes from. I think it, 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 it comes from, I mean, and I still have, I mean, self-belief is, is it makes it sound like it's, um, I don't have reservations about what I'm doing. But if you imagine my life now, and my life, in fact, for the last however many decades, I walk, on, walk into clubs and I go behind the decks and I inflict my favourite music very loudly on a bunch of strangers who've paid good money. <laughs> now, you have to have a certain amount of self-belief to do that, to be the person who gets on that stage and goes behind those decks. But that doesn't mean that I don't get anxious before the gig. It doesn't mean that... I I mean, in the days of vinyl, I remember sometimes my hand used to shake as I put the stylus onto the record, certainly at the beginning of a set. Um, Do you still get nervous now? After I still all. get nervous now. I get nervous about every single gig. And, and then when you put books out, you're also putting yourself not, you know, on, on a stage of sort. You're also putting yourself, your head above the parapet. But also you're putting yourself out there. And with this book, you're abso- I'm absolutely. absolutely. So the, the, the self-belief isn't without reservations, and it doesn't mean that I've ever felt like the per- kind of person who can just cut a swathe through popular culture in a kind of superhero way <laughs> to get what I want. I've not ever been that person. I've always been that person who's, like, full of doubt and full of anxiety and, and keeping my fingers crossed. And, and I still am, even though I've DJed thousands of times and I've had five books out. It doesn't get any easier. So the, self, the, self, the idea of self-belief is, is, is a comp- it's a complicated thing. I think it is, but I think if you, know, if you put the record on or whatever, you weren't nervous, you didn't have a little bit of anxiety, then maybe the passion's gone. I, you know, I know for myself that if I'm acting and I go out on stage and I go, oh, well... I'll just do this and say that there's nothing there, it's dead, mm. then the performance is going to be dead. So I'm sure, is, would that be the same thing? Yeah, the thing with DJing is that not every gig is going to be amazing, you know, because sometimes 
that connection with the audience isn't there. But uh, I'm often surprised by how the, that connection with the audience is there, and sometimes it's a gig that I'm not expecting much from. Can you tell when it's not there immediately, or is it something that grows? Yeah, but then I work on it. You know, you have the strategies for trying to make it work and finding that record that that changes the atmosphere and brings people in. And I mean, I talk quite in in the book about kind of not exactly the psychology of DJing, but I, I try and break down because the weird thing about writing about your own life is there's a lot of things that have either just happened that you can't really analyze five reasons why it happened, you know. So there's things like, um, you know, uh, selling my records, uh, falling out with Tony Wilson, um, some of the stuff we've talked about. Um, it, you know, I haven't got, like, uh, explanations for all those things. Um, and so it... So you, you don't... As you're, as you're writing it, you're kind of realising that at some point you just have to say, like, anybody who's lived a life... Actually, I don't really know why I, I did that. I don't know how that happened. Um, it just happened. It, it just happened, but the important thing is to kind of acknowledge it and to try and work out what, where you were at that one particular time. And in the same way, a lot of DJing is, in a way, instinctive... You know, I, I kind of instinctively know how I want the night to go and what I want to play. So I challenge myself to try and break down that instinct and to try and work out actually what is going on in, in my head at that, those points when I'm DJing. And, um, and, and I think what, one of the, I kind of call it like psychology, anthropology. You know, you're looking at the audience and you're trying to actually connect with a few people and you might pick out people in the crowd and you think they understand it i'm gonna i'm gonna work them you'll see some guy at the bar who thinks he knows a lot more about music than you do <laughs> who's just there to sneer and go back to his mates and say that dave hasn't shit but you pick him out immediately and ignore him the whole night you never attempt to bring him in onto the dance floor because you know that that's not what you want so he wants to go home with his preconceptions firmly um, so you can't, it's usually girls, you know, g- g- I, girls are the best thing about clubs and, and they are, you know, um, or gay men, to be honest, because I, th- I just think like, usually they're first on the dance floor. And I actually remember there was a, one of those sneery type guys uh, once said to a friend of mine, uh, oh, uh, Dave Haslam, I don't rate him. And my friend said, oh, why? You know, he seems successful enough. Music for girls. <laughs> and that was like his... Somehow he decided in his head that that was like the worst thing you could, you could do. But, you know, Ain't Nobody is the greatest dance record ever made, you yeah. know? And um, if that's music for girls, then guilty as charged. And just going back to the book, how easy or painful or difficult sorry that's a lot of things to go back and recall all that stuff from your early life and try and piece it all together was it did it come naturally to you uh i I enjoy i mean i enjoyed writing it i mean i guess one of the things that people uh sometimes 
think about a book like this is how therapeutic or whatever it might have been. And, and there was, a, there was an element of that in it, yeah. yeah. I mean, but also, so I kind of enjoyed that aspect of it. Weirdly, the bits that I didn't enjoy were the bits that I know are in the public domain. So the 80s, certainly when I started doing the fanzine, writing an enemy, working at the Hacienda, putting on bands... Sonic Youth Sleeping on My Floor. I loved all those years, and I really enjoyed writing about them because I knew that the readers weren't familiar with any of that stuff. The hard bit became when, kind of 1988, and the whole culture explodes, and all the people I'd been talking about in 1986, 87, like this funny band called Happy Mondays and this bunch of goths called the Stone Roses, and this... A strange man who didn't know if he loved or hated me called Tony Wilson. All these people suddenly became big. And this little club that I was DJing at for £40 a night suddenly became the epicentre of the music universe. Now, we all think we know that story of the Hacienda and Manchester and Spike Island and Acid House and all that. So actually, for me, the challenge in writing the book was how to write about that period of my life but in a way that was obviously um, interesting to a reader, but also honest to how I remember things yeah. and not, not really tarnished or influenced by the, all the mythology and the, and the history we all know about. So that was the, the hardest bit. And then after the Hacienda and the kind of, you know, the sort of various things that I get up, get up to in the last 15 years... Um, in a way, they become easy to write about. They, a lot of it is darker stuff, but it, it, actually the darker stuff was easier to write about than the stuff which, as I say, I think everybody feels like they know. Does DJing ever feel like a job to you? Or do you <laughs> still have the passion for it? I still ha- oh, no, I still have the passion. I'm addicted to it absolutely addicted to it and I will DJ until I arrive somewhere and there's nobody there you know so therefore it doesn't feel like a job yeah I mean because yeah I mean even if some you know when it gets to that point you know that that it'll be over because it is about the connection with an audience you know a, a DJ without an audience is just you know somebody with a bunch of records you know I mean it's like you have to have an audience and and you know I'm lucky in that I you know I can you know I, I try and I'm quite choosy about my gigs I, I usually end up enjoying them and about one out of every four uh, I, I absolutely love and that feeds my addiction what do you mean what do you say you're choosy about your gigs well I get offered um the kind of, will you come to Dry Bar, which is like a, I think it's now closed, but it was like a kind of uh, a bar in, on Oldham Street in Manchester, opposite Affleck's right, Palace, okay. where you got your, your salmon kickers from. And um, it's all connected. And, um, <laughs> and it was owned by Factory Records at one point and then sold on and went through various owners. But I'd get like, will you come and DJ at the dry bar, 20th birthday party, we'll give you, whatever, 800 quid to play for an hour, Manchester Classics. I'm like, I cannot think of anything worse. worse. You know? And um, 
just because I wouldn't have the passion. I love those records, and I've had a drink in Dry Bar, and I want to celebrate your birthday. But actually, as a DJ, I I I do have that, as you say, that need to keep feeling the passion and feeling excited. And in 1988-89, I was in love with those records because they were new. You know, I wasn't in love with those records because they filled the dance floor easily. I wasn't in love with those records because they, you know, whatever, they were big records. I just loved them because they were new and exciting. And um, so, so I'd rather take a gig. So if somebody says, oh, I've got a basement club, 200 people, We'll give you 80 quid. Uh, there'll only be yeah, 200 people there. We just want a party. Yeah. We don't care what you play. I'll, have, I'll take that gig. I'll take that gig. That was you, Leo, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds perfect. I, I think I want to end it. I want to throw out some questions to the audience, if anybody's got any Q&As. But what I want to ask you is, are you happy? <laughs> Are you I really happy? wish I'd, li- I'd listened to more of your podcasts before. I did, I well, it's a, it's a thing that I stole no, but Also, from... the other thing which I'm aware of is that I actually find you a really interesting person and, 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 and I actually I kind of wish that, that we'd had a bit more interaction. Can I ask you? You can ask me anything. But the weird thing is that in the book, all these things, and, and my age, mid-50s, things start to come round full circle. So music comes round full circle. But also, you know, uh, sadly, you know, a, a number of the people that I knew back then have died and you go to a funeral and you meet people again. Uh, and then, you know, things keep popping up from your past, like I guess any, anyone in the mid-50s. And also kind of uh, you walk around streets which end up being feeling a bit like they're full of ghosts or you go to venues and you look around and you kind of you have all these memories and it's kind of quite it's it's a bit disorientating and I'm finding it quite hard to deal with but one of the weird things for me is is um then meeting people who have have a connection with that meeting their children or whatever and it really freaked me out when I first met you because you played Tony Wilson yeah. And I'm like, okay, so, dear Tony, I was kind of, you know, I was used to, you know, dealing with, his, with amounts of antagonism with him when he was alive. I absolutely, he was somebody who opened the doors. Talk about opening doors. You know, he gave me the key to a load of doors, loads of opportunities. But, and, and I kind of, but he was always a little bit of a hard person to work with. I think if you were outside, you, you could sense his vision and how amazing he was. But on a day-to-day level, like any pressurised type work colleague, it, you know, sometimes people got irritated or exasperated, either him with me or me with him. So you, I'd kind of got, and then, of course, he died. And, 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 but then he lives on, you know, and people are always saying, you know, to, asking about Tony and doing events connected with the Hacienda. And I'm, kind of, I'm just kind of getting used to Tony's presence as a ghost, who still is somebody who influences what I feel and what I do. And then you come along, and you're like somebody who played Tony in a film. And I'm like, this is just getting deeper. <laughs> this is getting deeper. Did you learn anything about Tony from my book? 
that you wish you'd known before you played him? No, because before, because I grew up with him, you know, watching Granada Reports, and I used to have my tea in front of him, so I knew a version of Tony. And luckily, when I was filming, I was always dodging him because I didn't want to meet him before I filmed. And he came onto set uh, just before one of my biggest scenes, and I met him, and I was wearing... Because it was all shot in black and white, um, the film control, and I had uh, a brown velvet suit. And we were doing research, and because we were shooting in black and white, we can get away with it because he wore black. And he came up to me with his dogs... He didn't say hello. He went, that's wrong. I wore black. And I, I, just before I was about to film, and it just cr- completely crushed me. Um, and then afterwards I spoke to him, and he was really lovely and amazing. But it was, it was breaking the myth of, yeah. of Tony. Um, and I was, I was very... I suppose I was really careful. I wanted to be very careful about how he was portrayed. Mm. Um, in answer to your question... Yeah, I mean, bit. obviously, I think in in in, in control, uh, I mean, he, he, you portray him with more warmth, obviously, than than twenty four. He's portrayed in twenty four hour party people, I which mean, I think is good because two, in twenty four hour party people, it gets people gets pretty lacerated. Really. Yeah, but two very different uh, yeah. films that stand equally, mm-hmm. um, and people will have different memories of both of those bits of those mm-hmm. films. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Dave Haslam. And another episode is done. How lovely was that? Dave is just a lovely guy. And... If you were intrigued and you want to find out more, or maybe you didn't even know anything about Dave, his book now is available. It's called Sonic Youth Slept on My Floor. You can get it where they sell books. So grab yourself a copy and dive into that scene. Um, what else? Next week's episode 46. It's another live one. It's with Mr. Paddy Considine. I don't want to say too much, but I will tell you, oh, it's a cracker. It's a really, really good episode. And from day one since we started the podcast, when people do throw suggestions at us all the time, which we love, you know, we're not adverse to that, but we've got a really long list of people at the moment that we're, we're trying to get through. But Paddy was always on that list. And I knew how hard it was to get someone like Paddy. He doesn't do a lot of podcasts. He doesn't do loads of interviews. Um, so to get him was, was, was a real thrill. And, uh, yeah, he did not disappoint. It was absolutely lovely spending time with him. Um, what else? Also, I don't know what... I don't know. You listen to all sorts of things, I'm sure. But if you do listen to Desert Island Discs on BBC Radio 4, like I do all the time, I think I've got it set as a, as a podcast, so it comes through after after every Sunday. This week, the week just gone, it was David Baddiel... Um, the comedian and author. Go back and listen to it. Sometimes with Desert Island Island Discs, with the time frame, they only sort of skim the surface of the guest. And the the great thing about David Baddiel is he throws himself out there. All his his work is very uh, confessional. 
about his life and about him. I, I really go back and, and listen to that Desert Island Discs and uh, and then we'll have a chat next week about how many times you cried. Um, I think I was two and a half virgin on three. Uh, don't let that put you off. It's a it's a really it's a really beautiful episode. So thanks so much for joining us. I've been Craig Parkinson. He's been producer Griff, and this has been the Two Shot Podcast. Until next week, stay safe, take care, bye bye. The Two Shot Podcast is presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. Our music, our brilliant music, is courtesy of Then Thickens. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>